If you have your Bibles again, Acts 1, 9 to 26. Let's ask God to guide us. Father God, we thank you that through your Holy Spirit, who carried along the human authors to write Holy Scripture, and who opens and illumines our minds and our hearts, that today we can be changed. And we ask that you would impact us as we continue our study in Acts. Father, we pray for our world. We ask, Father, that you would protect the sovereign nation of Ukraine, that you would bring to justice Vladimir Putin, who is guilty of incredible atrocities. We ask, Father, that his army would be returned to Russia, that the sovereignty of Ukraine would no longer be at stake, that you would protect what we know to be about 1.4 million immigrants the largest mass movement of humanity in Europe since 1945. Father, protect these people who are under attack, who are fleeing for their lives and their freedoms. And we ask, Father, that you would give wisdom to the world leaders who need to decide how best to respond And Father, if there is another nation that is seeking to perhaps bring tyranny on a sovereign nation, may the response of the world cause them to shrink back and reconsider. Father, move in our world and move in us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. Today, you and I continue a study of the book of Acts. And as I thought about this, I thought of Pastor Schmidt, not my fellow pastor at Wausau Alliance, great guy, but a different Pastor Schmidt in another area. He had been teaching kind of an overview of the Gospels and Acts. He had a little Bible study class, and he thought he would begin with a little Q&A to see if they'd been paying attention. And so he said, Matthew, the first gospel, it's a word that means gift from God. What was Matthew's name before it was Matthew and what did he do? And someone raised their hand and said, oh, well, Matthew was Levi and he was a tax collector. Correct answer number one. Well done. He said, Mark, the gospel of Mark, besides the Holy Spirit guiding John Mark to write it, Really, who is the individual that led Mark to write what Mark wrote? It's Peter. The gospel of Mark really is the gospel of Peter. And someone knew that answer. Too correct. He said the gospel of Luke. What was Luke, his profession, before he traveled as a missionary? And Pastor Schmidt's son, five years old, sitting in the back coloring, he looked up and said, Luke is a Jedi. (laughs) 
That is a good, proud moment for a pastor. I think what Pastor Schmidt was looking for is Luke is a doctor, and he traveled around doing research, his research being perfect, as he penned Luke Acts, which really was one compendium, volume one, volume two, really the life of Jesus and the acts of the Holy Spirit. As I thought about Acts, especially chapter one, nine to 26, I thought about a man named Dr. Brian Harbour. Dr. Brian Harbour, Brian is a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention and a professor. And uh, he was on vacation in Milan, Italy, and he went to the Arcana Tea Mansion. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Arcana Tea Mansion. It's often been called the Versailles of Milan. Today, it's public. You can go there. Several hundred thousands of people go there on an annual basis. It has immaculate gardens, the Arcana Tea. But when he went, it was privately owned. It was owned by a family, and he knew by going there, he would not be allowed inside. You couldn't go in. There was a gated house and gated gardens, but he stood outside and kind of peered in because the Arconity gardens are like second to none. And while he's peering in, there's a gardener there who notices him, and they they strike up a conversation. They begin to talk, And finally, the gardener said, "Uh, Brian, would you just like to come in? I'll open the gate, and you can come in and see the gardens. And Brian thought, this is incredible. I mean, nobody can go to see the Arconity Gardens, not in those days. So he was brought in, and he looked around, and he said, this is unbelievable. I mean, there isn't a weed anywhere. There isn't a blade of grass out of place. Man, this is immaculate. Now, Brian knew something about the Arconity mansion and the gardens, and he knew that the owners rarely were at the mansion. And so we ask, when is the last time that the owners were here? And the gardener said, 12 years ago. Now, if you owned this kind of immaculate, opulent place, I think you'd visit a little more often than every 12 years, but it was 12 years And Dr. Harbour said, that's incredible. I mean, you have this place immaculate as though you're expecting the master tomorrow. And the gardener said, no, I'm expecting him today. And that's what the text is about. The master, Jesus, is coming back imminently at any moment. If you're lucky, he comes back before I'm done preaching. If not, you've got to endure the entire sermon. Maybe it'll be before next week, or maybe it'll be a thousand years from now. But the understanding that Jesus is coming back imminently at any moment is the understanding that we need to be prepared because the master is going to return. He's coming, and what is he going to find? If the master comes today, what does he find in your life? What does he find in my life? How are we utilizing what God has entrusted us, our talents, our time, our treasures. How are we utilizing that for the master? What are we allowing ourselves to look at? What are we allowing ourselves to think about? Are we pursuing Christ? 
Are we pursuing the Lord in his word? Are we pursuing the Lord in prayer? How are utilizing you and I utilizing what God has entrusted to us? The master's coming. Jesus is coming. What will he find when he arrives? That's the theme of today's text. I want to pick up in Acts 1. I want to read verses 9 to 11. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, As they, the disciples, were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men, their angels, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven." Now, if you and I were to have the time this morning to look at a number of commentaries written on the book of Acts, you would discover what I've discovered, and that is that many of the commentators are rather tough on the disciples. They're essentially something like this, those dumb disciples. I mean, come on. Jesus is ascending, and they're sitting there with their eyes bulging, their mouths wide open, catching flies. Don't they know there's kingdom work to be done? And I realize that they are getting a rebuke from the angels, but you can read the rebuke rather sharply as the commentators do, or rather gently, which I think is far more realistic. I mean, let's be honest. What would go on in your mind? You've been with Jesus for three and a half years. You remember what John said in John 21? He said, I suppose if all the miracles of Jesus had been written down, all the books on the earth could not contain them. So we read only a small portion of the miracles. They saw them, they lived them. We read small portions, little pieces of Jesus's message. They heard the messages. They saw the ministry for three and a half years. And now Jesus is setting aside the laws of gravity and he is ascending. How do you think you'd respond? What about me? I'd I'd be looking up to heaven with my mouth open, my eyes bulging. I'd probably need someone to nudge me and say, hey, by the way, Jeff, uh, that's pretty cool, but you got work to do, buddy, because the master is coming back. The master is Jesus, and when he comes back, what is he going to find? But I think the picture is even greater than that. Scholars almost universally see something that most American evangelicals do not in the text. Notice that when Jesus ascends, he ascends on what? A cloud. What's the picture of God the Father throughout Scripture? A cloud. Let me give it to you this way. In Exodus chapter 13, when God is leading the Jews out of Egypt and towards the promised land, By night, it is a pillar of fire, and by day, it is a cloud, right? We have the Shekinah glory. Shekinah is a Hebrew word speaking of the divine presence. In Exodus 19, when we have Moses on the mountain, Mount Sinai, he's going to be given the Ten Commandments. God the Father presents himself how? as a cloud. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we have the Shekinah, the glory of the divine presence in the Solomonic temple. And what is it? It is a cloud. In the New Testament, 
on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is with Peter, James, and John. And there's a cloud there, and out of that cloud comes a voice. This is my son. Listen to him. A cloud represents the Father. So I think we have more than just three and a half years of teaching, three and a half years of miracles, the setting aside of gravity, the ascending of the second person of the Trinity. I think he's writing the first person of the Trinity to heaven, and he's already told the people, I need to go so that the helper, the paraclete, will be sent to you. It's a Trinitarian moment. The Father is present, the Son is present, and the Holy Spirit is coming back. No wonder the disciples are standing there staring in the sky with their eyes bulging and their mouths open and they need a little bit of nudge. Hey, Jeff, pay attention. Men of Galilee, people of central Wisconsin, this Jesus who ascended is going to descend. He's coming back. The master is coming back. What is he going to find in our lives? Are we prepared for the master to return? The master is coming back. Now, certainly we ought to contemplate, and that's what they're doing. We're told all over scripture to contemplate. We are to be people of the word, right? People of the book. We are to study, but then we're to do. And that's the message. Men of Galilee, don't just stand there contemplating. Do the word. You remember what Luke says in Luke 12. To whom much is given, much more is expected. The more you and I know the word, the more you and I hear the word, the more culpable we are before a holy God. That's why James says in James 1.22, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Do the word. Why? Because the master is coming back. And what is the master going to find? He doesn't want to find bloated individuals who know a lot about scripture who are not living it out. Individuals who have tons of held knowledge, but no transformation. The master is coming back. I think of Matthew 11, verse 12, one of my favorite verses. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. As forceful men lay hold of it. I want to define that word forceful. It doesn't mean angry. It doesn't mean bitter. It doesn't mean hate-filled towards those who are doing things to our country. Forceful means engaged. The kingdom of God is engaging as engaged Christians move forward. That's what Matthew eleven twelve 12 says. That's what the angel is saying to the disciples. Hey, this is great. You've been contemplating scripture. You've seen a lot. You know a lot. Now go do a lot. Keep contemplating. Keep studying. But now engage. Put in overdrive that which you have learned. Because the master is coming back. And we need to be spiritually ready. Understanding the angel's admonition, the disciples prepare themselves for kingdom work. They're going to be praying first. Let me read verses 12 to 14. We saw a little of this last week. And by the way, as I read this, if you've been to Israel, the geography doesn't work. Why? 
Because today, Jerusalem is 850,000 people. So it's a lot bigger in spots. The old city of Jerusalem, which still exists today, has only 2,400 people. Think that population and the geography works. The geography doesn't work in 21st century Jerusalem, but it works by what it looked like 2,000 years ago. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Today, the Mount of Olivet, a glorified cemetery, is in Jerusalem. This was outside the walls in those days, which is near Jerusalem. Actually, today it's in Jerusalem. A Sabbath day's journey away. Well, if you've been there at the Mount Scopus, you go down the Mount of Olives, then you have Get Gethsemane, Gethsemane, uh, olive press, that's what it means. As you press an olive, so is Jesus pressed, so that he dripped great blood from his body. And right there is the Temple Mount. So a Sabbath day's journey is like, I don't know, a thousand yards? It's under that. Because in the oral tradition, you got a thousand yards to walk on the Sabbath. He's referring to Sabbath traditions here. That's all you can walk. You can take your long walks every day but the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, you get 1,000 yards. So we're within 1,000 yards of the Temple Mount. That's all he's telling us. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room. By the way, when you go to Israel, your guide takes you to the upper room. If that upper room is filled, they take you to another one. You know why? Because we don't know where it is. No idea. They went to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Only 11, we need 12. All those with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and the brothers. So what we have here is they've been contemplating scripture. They've been putting it into their heart, hiding it in their heart. And God said, go. But before you go, you still need to pray because it's the power of prayer. It's God working in and through us that changes lives, ours and others. That was true then. It's still true today. We ought to have times of prayer, but we ought to also send up those little SOS prayers throughout the day. That's what's going on. Now think about SOS prayers. It might go something like this. Lord, I'm in a discussion, I'm in a relationship, it's not going very well, and I'm getting ticked. I'm, I'm angry. And so my tendency is to implode or explode. Implode means that I withdraw and I seethe inside and nobody knows anything about it, or I explode and, well, I say things and do things that nobody wants me to say or do. But in Ephesians 4, 29, 30, and 31, it says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. In other words, I can be angry without sinning. So Lord, you know the emotions are running hot. Allow me to respond appropriately. Or Lord, I could objectify a certain individual and not treat that individual as someone made in your image. Help me to guard my mind. Help me to guard my eyes. Or Lord, I have a tendency to lie or be a bit dishonest, but I want to be honest, so help me to tell the truth. And we go through life with these SOS prayers. We're reliant on the Lord. That's what's going on here. They've contemplated scripture. 
They know that since the time of John the Baptist to today, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing as forceful lay men lay hold of it. They know that they must engage, but they also know that they need prayer because they know the master is coming back and he's going to ask, what have we done with what has been entrusted to us? Are we spiritually ready? Now think about what's going on in the text. In a few verses, Peter's about to preach and 3,000 come to Christ. That should arrest us, right? Should stop us. Yeah, because 3,000 know because Peter's preaching. Are you kidding me? 49 days earlier, what is Peter doing? He's out in a courtyard and he says, I don't know Jesus. Oh yeah, your, your Galilean accent, it gives you away. Did you not hear me? Let me throw in a few four-letter Galilean words. Blankety blank blank, I don't know the man. And now he's preaching. And in a, a few hours he's going to preach and 3,000 come to Christ. Have you ever read the sermon? I mean, we only have a little bit of it. It's not very good. It isn't. I mean, it's accurate, but there's no monomic devices. There's nothing that would cause you to remember it. Right now, you don't remember it. Or if you do, it's because you had it in devotions this week. It's not all that good. But it's not about Peter. It's not about his words. It's about what the Holy Spirit does. I think of a guy named uh, Arthur Moore. Arthur Moore was a pastor in mid-20th century. Arthur Moore was not afforded a lot of education. He didn't have that privilege in life. He was a high school graduate, never went further than that. Was used by God to pastor several large churches. And this is remarkable. He became the president of Wesleyan University in Georgia. How many university presidents do you know that do not have a college education? Like, probably none, right? That's not particularly common. Well, towards the end of his life in the church where he was preaching, a smaller sanctuary than this, but bigger than uh, traditions where I just came from, uh, it was said that almost every week someone came to Christ, either in the sanctuary or sometimes uh, during the week where somebody led from the congregation somebody else to Christ. And so somebody said, uh, Arthur, what is your secret? What's the secret sauce, man? How do I get this? And Arthur's like, the secret sauce? Are you kidding me? Well, I'll tell you what the secret is. And he brought him into the sanctuary. And it was before any of the services. And there were 70 people in the sanctuary. And he goes, what are they doing? Well, they're praying. Do you notice where they're sitting? They're like scattered everywhere. That's the secret sauce. You see, they're praying and bringing forth the divine warmth of the Holy Spirit. In a few minutes, those doors are going to open up and people who are cold with sin, hardened with sin, are going to walk in. And the divine presence of the Holy Spirit is going to work in and through their lives. And somebody might turn from sin and somebody else might come to know Christ as Savior. In other words, it's an act of the Holy Spirit that 
changes lives, ours and others. And so you think about the progression. They saw, they learned, they meditated. They realized that the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing as forceful men lay hold of it. They begin to pray, not just for 10 minutes or 10 hours, but 10 days. And then you have the transformation of 3,000 people from a message by Peter. The master is coming back. What will he find in our lives when he imminently comes back? What is he going to see in your life? What is he going to see in my life? How are we utilizing that which God has given to us? Well, it's not just word and action and prayer. It's also leadership. Let me read Acts 1, 15 to 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brethren, people, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, that's the betrayer, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. That's kind of pleasant. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms. So Peter paid attention in Sunday school, and he knows that Psalm 69 and 109 actually were prophecies about Judas and about the need to replace him. The psalm said, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. That is, he's going to hell. May hell be empty, though we know it's not. And let another take his place. We need 12 apostles. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forth two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen, the one to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots. Now I've had you up until this point. And they cast lots. And we think, what is that for them? And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. We all know the treachery of Judas. We know that for a few pieces of silver, a bag of silver, he defied the Christ. He led the Romans to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was arrested, and we begin the beatings, at least several beatings, and then the crucifixion, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we know that Judas, realizing how devious he was, added yet another sin to his life and took his own life. This left 11 apostles. Now, we might say, let well enough alone. 11 is pretty good, 12, 11, whatever. But they understood that we want to bridge the continuity of the Old Testament with the new. They understood 
that the 12 represented the 12 tribes. They're going to be preaching in the synagogues first before they start Christian churches in order to draw the Jews to the Messiah. They want them to know that the Messiah came for Jews and Gentiles, not just for 11 tribes, but 12 tribes. So therefore, it becomes very imperative that they replace the one and have 12 tribes of Israel. So what is their process? Well, the text tells us that they prayed. When we are looking for leaders, that's how we begin, we pray. I find this very interesting because I'm writing these sermons at the same time that our elder board is intending to expand the elder board by a person or two or more. And so it's been a long process. Really, it has been six or eight weeks so far and we're not done. So what did we do? We prayed and then we created a list of individuals who might serve on the elder board. And by the way, it was encouragingly long. A lot of people were on that list. A lot of individuals we thought could serve in this capacity, but far too long and wide for our purposes. But we don't want to choose our man. We want to choose God's man. And that's what verse 20 says. They want to choose the man that God has chosen. So we pray and we come together and we whittle the list down and pray and we whittle the list down a little bit more because it's not about finding the individual we want or individuals we want. It's the ones that God wants to serve. And so they actually get down to two. Now notice how they get down there. They're finding people of character. It says that they want somebody who was there at the resurrection, a church insider, someone who knows theology, who's living out theology. Isn't that what we are to do? Isn't that what the epistles say? We're finding individuals, Titus 1, 5 to 9, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, who have characteristics of character that are growing towards Christ. Now, if you read those characteristics, like nobody can stand. There's no possibility. But we right-size it and say individuals who are striving to become this type of leader. And so that helps to narrow the list and narrow the list. That's exactly what they did. And then you pray through the entire process. And then they get down to two and they cast lots and and we're like, what do we do with that? Well, let me talk a little bit about lots and, and how it would apply to us or not. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. If you notice how lots are used in scripture, the leaders narrow something down to just a few and then the lots are cast. And you can say, well, we can't cast lots because we don't have the lots anymore. We can't really roll through the directory to find leaders. Can't do that because we don't have lots. Actually, that's a cop-out because lots were just rocks that were painted on one side and we're capable of painting rocks on one side. So that's really not going to help us. When were lots used? Well, let me offer a few examples. The most important holiday of the Jewish calendar for Christians is Yom Kippur. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. That is critical for us. And remember what happens. 
The leadership picks two goats. But the leadership isn't going any further. We have two goats and we're going to cast lots to decide what happens to the two goats. So we cast lots and the first goat is the one in which the priest prays over symbolically passes the sins of humanity on that goat and then banishes the goat. The goat is sent out into the wilderness never to be brought back. It's alone. Jesus is the first goat, right? He's on the cross. Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the perfect fellowship between father and son is broken and Jesus is the first goat. The second goat is slaughtered. The blood sacrifice for the remission of sin. Jesus is the second goat. He dies on the cross and sheds his blood. Jesus is both goats. But how do you know which goat gets what? You cast lots. Joshua 14. He's coming into the promised land. He's got to divide up the land among 11 tribes. Remember, the tribe of Levi doesn't get land. So only 11 tribes get land. And Joshua's like, this is too big for me. I don't know. Let's cast lots. And that's how we divide the land. You think of Nehemiah. He comes in and rebuilds the walls and they set up worship. And who's going to bring the wood to the altar to offer the savory sweet sacrifices to God? We don't know what priest is qualified. So they select a few and then they cast lots to determine the right one. And then we have this text. They've gotten down to two people. They're not sure which one. They cast lots. Now this is where we have to understand genre. Genre is the type of literature that one is reading. Acts is historical literature. It's descriptive. It tells us what happens, but we're not always sure whether it is describing only or it's prescriptive. It becomes prescriptive. We are to do likewise when we have epistolary literature that gives us yes, you should or no, you shouldn't. So we ought to follow how they found elders because we see it in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, and 1 Peter 5. But we don't see lots again in the New Testament. This is the last time. Why? What happened? Pentecost happens. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down. And instead of coming and going, coming and going, for the first time, the Holy Spirit descends and remains in us. Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit is a down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance. So we don't cast lots for the last two because for the first time we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit permanently. And so we get down to two and we say, Lord, not our choice, yours. We'll wait. We'll tarry. We'll be patient until you reveal your individual for us. Lots are not again used in Scripture after Pentecost. That's why we don't use them today. So what are we to say about the text? The master's coming back. Jesus is coming back. And I've got to ask myself, you've got to ask yourself, if he were to come back today, what is he going to find? What is the priorities of our lives? How are we living? How are we utilizing 
the times and talents and treasures that God has given us. What are we looking at? Where are we going? What are we doing? How are we guarding our hearts and our minds? How are we developing our hearts and minds? How are we like those from John the Baptist onward where the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing as forceful men, people, women, children lay hold of it? What will the master find if he were to come back today? That's the theme of the text. And that's the question we ask ourselves today when we leave. What is the master going to find in our lives if he were to come back today? Are we part of that from the John the Baptist onward, advancing the kingdom as forceful, not angry, not bitter, not hate-filled, as engaged Christians engage the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Father God, uh, allow us to be engaged Christ followers. Really easier to say than to do, easier to listen than to apply. But we want to be engaged for our betterment, your glory. We know that your son, the master, is coming back. May we be ready first for the personal relationship of Jesus Christ and then living our lives for your glory. We ask that this would be true in our lives. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.